Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton. Today I'm here with Jonathan Toddy. Where are you, John? No, I'm in Louisville, Texas. And Louisville is a suburb of Dallas? It's a north of just a northern suburb. Yeah, it has, you know, the distinction of being a town before the urban sprawl caught up with it. You know, I think Louisville may have been kind of an, an old Wild West town, or at least by the end of the 19th century, it was already in existence. But now it's been caught up in the urban sprawl that is the Dallas Metroplex. Actually, you got roots in Texas. Oh, yeah, the toddies. You know, you make me confess all my family's sins, right? We're always Southerners. They once had a plantation right next to Thomas Jefferson's grandpa in Virginia, but ended up in Texas. Texas Rangers, you know, there was a a Captain F.M. Toddy. And so I've just come back to the family home in one sense. He's a, he's a real smart guy. That's you know, that saying. was my Missouri upbringing. And John, I heard you used to wear boots and cowboy. You had a straw hanging out. I mean, I, like, you know. But don't worry. I am quite civilized. <laughs> when John, John came to school, you had just been working in the stockyards, right? I, I So I worked on our family farm as well as I cowboyed some for the local sale barn, you know, the livestock barn. Hey, my favorite lonesome dove, man. Yeah, when I think Texas, I think Captain Call and, you know, Gus McRae. Dude, you are the coolest person. When I think of John, you know, to, in, the, in the podcast today, we're going to talk about, well, what do we mean by the good and the beautiful and the true? But it's like, what do we mean when we say that? And it's like, when I say John Toddy, what I have in my mind is a picture of Clint Eastwood and the good and the bad. Oh, yes, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's not quite the same <laughs> thing. Matt is in. You're uh, Matt's originally from Ohio, though, from Steubenville, Ohio, which says a lot about someone. Yeah, it does. You know, when I, when I introduce myself, they say you're from Steubenville, and I say, "Look, man, that's first of all, that's the oldest joke in the world." Second of all, it's Steubenville. And listen, man, speaking of cool cowboys, Dean Martin is from Steubenville. All right. You might have heard of him. He was in the greatest Western uh, ever made. I mean, he was in Rio Lobo, right? You know, yeah, that's what Rio Bravo. What am I doing? Rio Bravo, Rio Bravo yeah. I spent a lot of time, a lot of many years doing drugs, which is the reason why I couldn't remember the name of one of my favorite movies called Rio Bravo. I don't think that's the greatest Western ever made, though. Yeah, not, I think it may be the, the greatest Western. I don't. That's a whole different podcast. I mean, we could do Rio Bravo. We could do The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. We could do Unforgiven. I know. Well, The Searchers is a fine bit of cinema. Oh, man. The the Searchers? So many. I was thinking, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. I've seen Serbio Corbucci, you know, like the gritty kind of like, uh, you know, Django movies and stuff like that. But maybe that's a whole different pot. But yeah, I'm, uh, I am from uh, Eastern Ohio. We refer to it as the Holy Land. I currently live in a suburb of Indianapolis called Whitestown, which I was terrible. I was scared when I moved here. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to move into like the most racist city in the whole United States. It's literally called Whitestown. Uh, but did a little bit of research. It's not that it was actually, you know, founded by a Christian missionary. So, uh, who was a pacifist, by the way, I believe. Wow. So, wow. 
And why is that his name, uh, White? You know, I hope that it, there was a guy named Mr. White, you know, like on Breaking Bad or something like that. Because there's Whitestown here, and then the town over, it's called Brownsburg. Just full of white people, by the way. Red town, <laughs> yellow so town. That's, that's kind of demographic here. But, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice little suburb. And, you know, all the roads here are very straight. You don't really have to turn your steering wheel very often. The scenery is corn. So you're saying it's not God's country. No, that's, no. The, we've already said, I mean, Ohio, Eastern Ohio is is like the new Jerusalem. So when the Lord comes back. That's England, don't you know? Yeah, he's going to have one foot. Yeah, in England and the other and the other foot will be in the Ohio Valley. You know, that's why the Ohio Valley is there. Hey, all I know is uh, there's only one place that's been blessed by God's own hand. And uh, that's Texas. Boy, John, you have converted, <laughs> truly, huh? I mean, it is the Republic. Right? Weren't you guys like trying to be your own? Well, trying to be. I mean, I think quite successfully. <laughs> to defeat the Mexican Empire, defeat the Comanche Empire, and establish the Republic of Texas. Yeah, unlike, hey, unlike Ohio, we've been <laughs> steadfast you know. and firm and true since 1803. <laughs> I think I was 13 years old. or No, I was about 11 years old when I moved to Texas. It was like a trip to another country. I'd never. Yeah, Paul had. Uh, it was it was sort of a strange place, but they had a local radio station there, uh, in a little town of about six thousand people, and on the radio, I'd never I'd never experienced this. You know, they would literally go through and say, "Farmer John Brown, he did get a new tractor this week." You'd get all the local news. One day, I was listening, and uh, on the they came on, they said. Well, yesterday in town, people saw, uh, the police saw a stranger, and he was suspicious, and they arrested him, and sure enough, he had stolen. I like whenever Paul, I like whenever Paul's <laughs> talking about Texas, Texas, he all of a sudden turns into George Bush with his S's. He starts talking, <laughs> talking like this and saying Texas. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Texas. Texas Rangers. I want to share with you, I can't remember the poet, but my favorite West Texas poem, look down, that's the ground. Look up, that's the sky. Look out. See where they meet. They've been married to each other from the beginning of time. They hate it. They take it out on the kids. Only West Texans are so eloquent. They have found a connection between Hurricane Katrina and Al-Qaeda. They both begin with a letter K. Oh. We're going to hunt them down and bring them to justice. Texas style. We're like a theological Sergio Leone movie. <laughs> no, I think this is a huge topic, but I think it is it is a key topic. Obviously, I can't avoid you know the title for Podcast 3 is The Truth is the Way, which for me is one of my all-time favorite books by Christopher Ben Simpson. Wonderful book on Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, you know, but I had a, I went to the Kierkegaard library at St. Olaf's for one summer and I had a girl there. She was a, she's a Danish, she's a friend of mine. And she said, it's Saint Abu Kierkegaard. That's how you say it. I was like, okay, I never forgot, but that's, that's how you say it. But the truth of the way uh, is truly one of my favorite books. It was, it was a book that when I went to Lincoln Christian University and I met, I took uh, Chris Simpson's class on Kierkegaard and I read it and I was just blown away. I said, I have to read everything I can by this guy, Kierkegaard, 
Um, so is that is that the direction that you're headed with our talk today? Yeah, I mean, oddly enough, you know, we're kind of looking at Douglas Campbell's book as being the outliner standing in the background of these talks. And I had made a schedule for eight weeks because it cohered with Eastertide in some way from when I was beginning. I can't even remember exactly how I came up with needing to do eight, but I did for whatever reason. And I, and I have this topic, you know, God is the truth. And then I go back to Campbell's book. And while he is addressing that idea, there is no chapter. God is the truth in the section on resurrection. And so at the last minute, I thought, well, what what resources might I tap into? And what better than uh, is the book that you were referencing? Chris's book is what came to mind first. And of course, what Kierkegaard does with truth and truth is being the truth of human existence or Christianity making these claims about human existence. And I thought, well, that does fit quite well, actually, with a way of describing resurrected life and what we're already talking about. Yeah. So the truth isn't just an abstract. To me, that's what I got out of both, you know, Chris's book and and certainly with Kierkegaard is that he doesn't want to talk about truth in terms of an abstraction, but embodied reality. Mm -hmm. And so what we've been talking about on the previous podcast is that, well, there's really maybe a way to even do theology where it's much more abstract. It's much more maybe sort of done in a nominalist mode where we talked about justification as kind of a categorical declaration, Mm -hmm. you know, that God makes about us that we're not guilty. Whereas I think that what Kierkegaard is saying, what Chris is saying, what you've been saying, what Douglas Campbell is saying, I think is that uh, actually truth, rather than just being an abstract principle, like two plus two equals four or something like this is actually an embodied, Chris calls it like a theologia viatorum. You know, it's like, it's, well, that's, that's the Latin for the truth is the way that's in the footnote of Kierkegaard. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And I guess it leads us, you know, well, to our first question, I think, if you guys are ready mm-hmm. to go. Because, you know, if if God is truth, and that's what we've been talking about, to understand God properly, we've been saying is to not, first of all, understand him primarily as a lawgiver, although that's, you know, God is the source of the good. But what we want to say is what's more primary about God is his goodness, his love, uh, what we would call the transcendentals, you know, the uh, that God is the truth itself. Truth, then, is in what Kierkegaard, you know, he calls God. Infinite qualitative difference? Infinite, yeah, the infinite qualitative difference between us and God. You know, that truth is an infinite, uncreated category. So it's not just some sort of human mode of knowing or way of knowing, but that it's a, it's an actual thing. It's an uncreated category. It's God itself. And so if that's true, how can we as, you know, mere mortals or fallen creatures come to know the truth? Yeah, I think it's an interesting way of thinking because, and also this, the early church, if they were trying to hammer one point home, it was that at its core, theology or our God talk is in some way apophatic because we're talking about an uncreated God as created beings. So there's this distinction, it's an ontological distinction of sorts, that God is infinite and we are finite. And this seems to be at the core of almost all early theology, regardless of what doctrine they're going to talk about, they're going to reference this idea, which does bring up the question that you asked, well, if God is infinite, if God is uncreated, and we are finite, and we are created beings that exist in a time-space-matter continuum, then how in the world is it possible that we would know God? And worse yet, in this scenario, if God is truth, how can we know truth? Uh, How can we know anything true about ourselves or the world we live in? 
And so, you know, that just brings up question after question. You can think about like, those are the questions of modern philosophy, really. So once people turned away from thinking that revelation is a foundational way of thinking about who God is, so that Jesus Christ is God revealed, you're left without being able to say true things. And so that gets us into a lot of trouble later. How is it possible to talk about God who is truth, even though we are but mere mortals, finite beings? I think the answer does have to do with revelation, but the way that works isn't a a narrow revelation per se. Um, If we think back to the last few conversations that we've had, there is a way in which the crucifixion of Christ, which is the fullness of his life, is also the extreme end or the extreme manifestation of what's true about the incarnation and what's true about creation itself, because creation is in and through the word and exists for the word. Uh, So none of those things are separate. And that's why we might think about creation as having coherence that we might be able to discover, even without recourse to some specific revelation, Although there's not a real coherence at the ultimate level of things, like if we're talking about first order, what is truth? We're missing coherence when we're looking at just the internal order of creation apart from who Jesus is, because we're, we're missing uh, the answers about what's true about ourselves. Uh, we don't really know what we are, why we are, or what we're to be apart from Jesus Christ. We have a very specific revelation given to us in one way that opens up and connects uh, the broadest sense of revelation that we could be able to consider. And so we then think that when we talk about truth or when we talk about who God is, the way we have access to this is by God entering into time and space uh, as a human being Jesus Christ and revealing the way or making sense of is a way of thinking of this, making sense of all things, making sense of ourselves and how we fit, and in turn making sense of God, though that's to leave it true to fact that we haven't comprehended God, so that we're never going to move beyond that distinction as God is uncreated, infinite, and we ourselves as finite created beings. But thanks be to uh, God and Christ that we know the divine nature and our own human natures can be joined together, that we might even partake of who God is. And thus we partake of truth. Uh, So the truth is a person. And seeing how we're on Paul's podcast, we might want to bring him in on this. Paul, you're there in the background uh, listening. Welcome. Welcome to your your own podcast, Forging Plowshares. No, but I want to bring you in on this and ask you that, because this is something that, that we learned very early on from you. And that is, is that, you know, truth, rather than being an abstract principle, is a person, right? That, that, that there's a way and that Jesus, you know, said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, you know? So the truth is a person. And, you know, this is what they talk about even in the, in the one of the first things they teach you with the Jesus prayer, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner, is that, you know, it's not a mantra. You know, you're praying to a person. So keep that in mind. So it's not like you're just repeating this abstract truth over and over, but that you're actually talking to someone who... Uh, is the truth. So Paul, what are, what are some of the ways that we would normally think about what truth is or how it functions? I noticed that John gets all the really good positive answers. And when you want the really bad stuff, you turn to me. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I think, I think that describing the wrong approach, first of all, is very helpful because I think in fact, 
the, to talk about truth as a person, that may not be gaining much traction with anybody, as opposed to what might be the question. And so if you go and study in a philosophy uh, course, probably in about half the schools in the country, the starting presupposition, in fact, it's so basic, no one will probably even say it, and you may be well into the program before you recognize that they're, in fact, describing truth not as a person, but as a set of propositions. And so this is the way I think that we're used to talking about truth, that truth is propositional. And that means that we can say it, we can reduce it to these facts, we can reduce it to these doctrines. And if you line up enough doctrines, enough statements of fact, enough propositions, then this is the truth. And of course, we don't want to just dismiss that. If you don't understand that most of us are not geared to working in the mode that the New Testament is written in, that you're going to miss what we're talking about when we say that the truth is a person. Because the opposite of that would be to just always work with propositions, statements, things, you know, objects, and to in some way come up with a mode of correspondence. And so there is the whole idea of the correspondence theory of truth. And so you're trying to say, well, this corresponds to that, and there are these middle objects of knowledge and the way that we describe those, well, that's when you describe them accurately, you describe them the way they really are, that's the truth. Unfortunately, I think you can just spin your wheels forever. And that describes what has happened in modernity. And I think that we all inhabit modernity. That is, we're really geared to thinking of truth as propositions. And so we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that we're saying something very different. When we say that truth is a person, this is going to have all sorts of implications. You can't say a person. In other words, you can't reduce a person to a set of propositions. Now, certainly there may be propositions that person says, and there may be things that we can say that are true about that person, but we've not captured the truth in what can be said about the person apart from the person. And so when we talk about God as being personal, and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what it means that he's the truth is that he's personal, that he's a person. And so we need to just make departure one. We're never going to be able to talk about ultimate truth apart from this very fundamental, basic notion to Christianity. But unfortunately, I think, you know, this is just most Christians, in fact, have already made a departure and imagined, well, the truth is something other than the person. That may be point one. I can go on and talk about this more, you know, that this becomes a psychological fact about us, that even within ourselves, there becomes this struggle between language and the symbolic order and the relationship between the symbolic order and our own embodiment. That is that there's a kind of split between the two.
So I think the thing that I'm describing about the failure of even beginning to talk about the truth is really a failure of human personhood. We're more geared to working within this mode in which we would reduce truth to the symbolic order. If you want to think about it in terms of the law, that we would reduce the truth to a law. Once you put it that way, then I think you can go back. You know, I, I always am hesitant to talk about the stories in Genesis because I don't mean these stories to bear all this weight and to imagine that I'm saying that because these, you know, these stories are the case, well, then this is the case. I think we actually need to work in the opposite direction. That what we see happening in Genesis is a departure from the notion of truth as we're talking about it in Jesus, that truth is a person. Isn't that precisely the turn that is illustrated to us in the turn from God and access to God and the life of God to the turn to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? However you want to read that story if you want to read it as illustrative, if, you know, whatever. But the point is that we find ourselves in a world that is imagining as Hegel would have it. You know, this is Hegelian. This is Augustine got this beautifully. He said, what you get in the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a system of circulating signs that are ultimately empty. And so I think you almost just have to get that Oh, there's this broad and wide world inclusive of philosophy, inclusive of human psychology, just sort of the realm in which people work, in which truth is presumed to be reducible to propositions. So that's the departure that John is describing. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, good to hear you praise Augustine. <laughs> no, that was, that was excellent. And isn't it something that yeah. only Jesus said? You know, we, we talked, we started out talking about the truth is an infinite, uncreated category. So whatever a human proposition of truth is, it's not that, right? But the, it's, it's, isn't it something that Jesus mm -hmm. is the only one then that can truly say something like, I am the way and the truth and the life sort of conjoining who he is with what mm -hmm. he says or the proposition that he's giving. The rest of us, you know, can't really do that. You know, I, Jesus can say I am and put a period on it. We have to sort of qualify it. And so, John, I want to dig in a little bit yeah. more, though, and, and discover a little bit more about what you mean, though, by, by the truth is the way. Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase Chris Simpson's book now. He makes the interesting point that this phrase can be used in two ways. So in one way, when we say the truth is the way, we're saying something about how we engage truth, such that as we, we grow, the, this truth um, is bigger than we are. It's something we enter into. It's a reality. And this is Kierkegaard's point, right? The problem with abstraction isn't that we would engage reality philosophically, the problem is that no longer are we engaging reality, but we're rather just engaging ideas philosophically. So where is the ground? So in this sense, what we're saying is Jesus himself is reality. Jesus is the definition of reality or a true definition of reality. And what that means then uh, is that truth in this sense is about existence. What's fascinating about all this is, of course, we're for Kierkegaard and for where how we're describing this, 
when we think of things as existing, even Jesus Christ, in as much as he's fully human, we don't think that God exists at all in that or in that way. God is not a part of this cosmos or a part of this, uh, you know, space-time continuum. God's not a thing in the universe or in the cosmos, and yet the way we're able to reflect on truth is by thinking of some reality that is actually existing, which participates fully in the divine nature. Well, that would be Jesus Christ. Uh, so we know that we're saying something true when we're talking about Jesus, and that gives cohesion to anything else that we understand to be true. We're, we're almost answering the question of why things are the case. We're not necessarily asking like, where do things come from? Because it's still a satisfactory answer to say, well, you know, an oak tree comes from a seed which came from uh, and another oak tree before it and so on and so on and so on. And you could even add evolution in there and say plants have evolved from other, some other kind of vegetative life and say the same thing about humans. And all that's fine and that's true. But we're still left wondering, like, well, why is any of that the case in the first place? Why is there an order? Why... Uh, is there some kind of coherence? Where is all of this headed? And to reference those questions is where we need um, truly some kind of infinite answer to be able to make sense. We need to be able to reference the one. The one is, uh, you know, a divinely simple God, a God who is consistent in who God is, a God of love, a God of truth, a God of goodness, a God of beauty, and so forth. And we're able to reflect on that God because we have Jesus Christ in time and space. We have some reality to reflect on. So that's really good. And so Kierkegaard would be okay. And I think we should all be okay with, um, you know, theologizing, talking about Jesus. But we realize that our talk then has reference to some reality. Now, the other way, tr the truth is the way makes sense is that if we're talking about a truth that is the truth of existence, or human existence specifically, that also means that along this way, we are to be guided into becoming uh, more truthful beings, or we cohere better with the reality of Jesus Christ as God is being revealed in time and space. We cohere more rightly than with the direction of the cosmos or the direction all things are going according to God's plan, which also means, uh, you know, in contrast, there would be a way of untruth and that, you know, we might tend to wander away from the truth and then our lives would become more disordered or more chaotic. And we see the effects of our own sin on the world in this way, too, that we can cause a lot of chaos and disorder. And so... In this sense, the truth is the way also means that our lives need to be guided into true existence. And of course, thanks be to God, we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit making the life of Christ present in our own lives. So I think that's a way of approaching uh, this idea, the truth is the way, which is really just to explain what Paul was saying a moment ago, that truth is the person of Jesus revealing God to us. The truth isn't some abstract concept. Okay, guys, I want to try to bring together what we're saying about Kierkegaard and what we've been saying about Douglas Campbell, right? So in, in regard to the truth as the way or the truth as Christ himself. So aren't both thinkers, and Paul, I'll give you the first crack at this. So aren't both thinkers asking us to sort of take a, you know, this never actually, this phrase never actually appears in Kierkegaard, but, you know, the leap of faith, that is to take it on faith 
as a starting point, as a foundation, if you will, the, the truth of Christ as a given so that we're not building on some other foundation in order to get to truth, but that we're taking Christ as the truth, as a given. Doesn't that, first of all, involve a movement of faith that would sort of undergird our epistemology? Yes. <laughs> never answer, never ask an open-ended question. <laughs> How does it, you know, how does this movement of faith, you know, I guess what I'm getting at is, is that it's, it's an, it's a nice thing to say. Maybe it's an easy thing to say, to say, oh, well, you know, you got to start with, with Jesus Christ, you know, as the truth. And it's like, okay, well that involves a giant leap of faith epistemologically for someone who may not subscribe to our worldview. Yeah, is that what I'm getting at? So, um, how does that sort of hold water with someone like Douglas? I mean, so we know for Kierkegaard where he's coming from, he's just saying, "Well, that's just the way that it is." You, I mean, this is going to involve, you know, faith is going to lead to understanding, uh, you know, not vice versa. Right, right. Um, so, so, I'm trying to bring um, this great conversation about Kierkegaard together with what we've already said about Douglas Campbell in some sort of coherent way. Um, what are both thinkers then right, right. tell us, right, about the nature? Of right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was joking a little bit. The, what you get in Campbell and what he's talking about is an apocalyptic notion of Christ breaking in. I think a, a way to, to get at this is to recognize. It's not that we don't have access to truths, that is, to facts, and you know, there's all sorts of truths about the world that we can comprehend. I think it, it helps, again, to start from a kind of negative understanding. The biblical picture is that, in fact, we, have, we don't have access to the truth of God because of a deception. To what does that deception pertain? It doesn't mean you can't know that water is H2O, or that, you know, if a bus is coming down the street, you shouldn't step in front of it. We still have access to all sorts of things. So in what way is it that we have bought into a deception? Well, it's precisely this conversation, isn't it? That is that we imagine that we have access to truth in some ultimate sense, through ordinary truths or through ordinary facts. That is, uh, uh, that we can live with a kind of idolatrous understanding in which we would reify the facts and the stuff of this world as if that's an end in itself. That is idolatry by definition. And even those things that are not formal modes of idolatry then will tend to reify or absolutize those realms that we have access to. That's not just human finitude, that's human deception. That is sin by definition. And so when we talk about Christ in an apocalyptic sense, he's breaking into that deception. He's breaking into that lie. So that when we talk about Christ as the truth, I think it's helpful to understand he's the truth over and against a lie. And very specifically, this lie that I'm describing. That is, when we say he's the truth, we're not saying, oh, he's like a fact or he's like a proposition. No, that in Christ we encounter a, a completely alternative realm of understanding. And it is this discussion. This is the very heart of revelation. 
So that's the picture. How can we know this absolute truth apart from it being revealed to us in Christ? Well, we can't for two reasons. One is, well, we're, we're finite, but even more confounded than that, we're deceived, and we're finite creatures who don't recognize it. And so we've refused God in a twofold sense. I think both Kierkegaard, and this is, you know, when you get into discussion of fideism, you know, is it, do you be, just have to begin there? I think that that's too simplistic. I think that Kierkegaard doesn't use the language of a leap of faith because, in fact, it's, it's always more complicated than that. We always know that truth is something that you know, it kind of dawns upon us. It's something that you can explore. It's, you know, even uh, you, you can come to trust in the truth. You can come to recognize a coherence in the truth. This all can function in a way as evidence, but not in a foundationalist sense. And I think that's what Kierkegaard is rejecting, and that's what Douglas Campbell continually talks about is a rejection of knowledge as in some way foundational. See there, Paul, I was teeing you up to crank it out of the park and you then you did it. <laughs> <laughs> the truth over and against a lie. That's what that's kind of like where I was wanting you to go there. John, the same same question to you then. How you know help us bring Kierkegaard and Campbell together. <laughs> I would like to pick up where Paul left off. You know, Paul did a good job of evading the question you asked in one sense, and even he kind of let you know why. It's because it's very hard to answer that question and not say something that ends up being fideistic. And even Douglas Campbell, when he's using the word foundationalism, he's redefined that word. And I don't quite understand why. I mean, it's not completely equivocal to what like a philosopher would mean, but he's very clear that he's redefining the word uh, in this new book of his. And a practical way of thinking about what he's done is that he's saying Jesus is foundational. And that means that if we know Jesus is to be true, if we know Jesus is the truth about human existence and what it means to be human, then we can't any longer say, well, I know Jesus is or said or does or commands, but I live in the real world. And so X has to actually be true. Now, this is really, that's an existential issue because um, we can think of countless examples, right? Jesus will say, love your neighbors as thy, I mean, love your enemies as thyself. And we'll say, oh yeah, okay, that's, you know, that's good words of Jesus. Except, you know, if you're the American president, that just doesn't really work out. I don't actually like that teaching of Jesus. And if you are the president, you might even say that at the National <laughs> Prayer Breakfast. Um, that's what Douglas Campbell is trying to get us not to do. He's steering us away from that sort of behavior. And that's what he means by Jesus is foundational. And we don't want to practice a foundationalism that would really have some other ideology or some philosophy or, uh, you know, school of thought or way of being in this world that ends up actually being the judge of how we exist. Um, rather than Jesus being the truth of our existence. That's what he's getting at. So it's not, uh, I don't think it's right to pose the question, or the answer won't be in some way of, oh, well, I've decided, I think I'm going to be a Christian. I guess I'm just going to have to make this leap of faith. It doesn't make any sense to me at all why I would do this, but I'm going to do it. Uh, I don't think that's actually whatever happens. And, you know, the blessed 
Cardinal John Henry Newman writes a whole book about this that I think is just exceptional in analyzing the anatomy of the way we come at faith. It's, this is the grammar of ascent, right? And he notices that actually the way ascent works is a bit of a process. And it's a, it's a building that happens. It's almost like the furniture of our minds continues to be rearranged by behaviors, by things learned, by people meet, that we meet that makes certain ideas or assertions more valuable to us or more desirable in some way. And before you know it, we have all sorts of positions that are by faith. But it's not as if we just leapt to those positions. Like there's a whole process of getting there that's an embodied process. So I think that's what Campbell, uh, I, I think Campbell would agree with that. He continuously makes little reference in his, references in his footnotes that while he is Bartian and while the project is Bartian, Bart had some blind spots where certain Roman Catholic doctrines are concerned. Or And he even says that actually Stanley Harawas has overcome some of these things. I think a good example of like, well, what does that mean? What, what does all this mean? Uh, so I hope I'm not just confusing everybody because I'm referencing all sorts of other things. But so take Stanley Harawas, who's supposedly a good Bartian theologian and ethicist, who repeatedly says that experience has nothing to do with theology. And then he decides to write a theological memoir <laughs> that explains his theological position yeah. in and through his biography. I think he's not so much of saying as, oh yes, let's base our doctrines over empirical reasoning, because that in and of itself is still doing that sort of uh, you know abstraction notion. Uh, empirical science is really not giving you a different definition of truth then truth is just an equation or it's an abstract objective notion. That's, it's still plagued by the same problems. What I think Harawas is saying is that if you know God is creator and is the one for whom creation is made, and this is God is the end of creation, then there's going to be a logic to it. Uh, that doesn't mean every aspect of our experience is going to be logical. And of course, that we use Jesus as the measure by which things make sense and which things are you know types of evil that just don't have any meaning in our lives. But if all those things are true, then um, our lives will have a type of coherence that will be able to speak to our faith and will be able to speak to true things about God, that our existence in Christ becomes a true existence more or less. you know I'm not I'm not claiming that it's all true necessarily, but um, I think that would be a way of coming at that question that, uh, you know, the leaping here is, sure, we have to suspend um, certain things. We, what we're suspending really is what uh, a lay person would call common sense, right? Which is, you can't, you know, die on a cross and start a kingdom that's going to last forever. That makes no sense. So we suspend that notion. But that notion isn't a true notion anyway. It's actually based on the lacking that we feel in ourselves, that we would do violence to others to sustain our own lives. I mean, that's not true in any sense. So we're suspending one type of knowledge. I think this is what Paul was talking about as a deceived knowledge or deception that would ultimately be self-serving. And then we live into, uh, you know, true knowledge, which has to do with true existence and is very much connected with the world that we find ourselves in. That's right. And I, and I hope that I didn't take us too far off the topic. No, no, no. That was a beautiful question, Matt. 
it's I don't want to I don't mean to take us off a topic, but it's a huge claim to just say, well, we need to take Christ as the as a given and then build from there. And so, uh, Paul, I do want to mm-hmm. ask if you have anything to add to that. Building off of what John is saying, I'm very hesitant. In other words, what Campbell is saying, there should be no buts. And I think that it's this conversation that we need to be careful because when you say, well, you know, run down for what this is, our tendency will be Mm -hmm. to say, well, it's fideism. It's a leap of faith and you just have to get it. No, it's not that. Or we may want to say, well, it's just a coherence theory of truth. Well, that doesn't quite get it either. In other words, I think it does include, yes, we do have to have faith. Yes, I think that this causes things to cohere. And specifically in your, you brought up Stanley Hauerwas. You know, Hauerwas in his discussion about John Howard Yoder, that Hauerwas may have been one of the few people that had a full appreciation of Yoder and was a deep friend with Yoder. Hauerwas makes a mistake. Here is a guy that is just, I, I don't know him, but from you know his picture in his autobiography and what other people have said, he has these profound friendships. And yet he himself begins to describe theology as if those emotions, as if that feeling, as if that doesn't play into it. And I think he's kind of following Yoder here. That's a, a failure to recognize who he is himself. He does theology so well because he does friendship so well. And it's almost like, well, how would you define friendship? Or how would you know define love of anybody? You know, this is Zizek. If you tell your wife that you love her because she has long blonde hair, that probably won't be very flattering to her. Or if she, because she has really good teeth. Yes. Or, you know, in other words, if you try to line up some propositions of why you love her, well, you don't love her if you can reduce it to those propositions. And so by the same token in this conversation, I think we need to hesitate a little bit. In other words, this is an all-inclusive thing. It's inclusive of human emotion, of the richness of life, of the depth of life. And in some way, this just dawns on us gradually. That's the way that C.S. Lewis describes his conversion. But I think that's all of our conversions. That To say, how did that happen? It's hard to, to lay it out completely. And I think that's what it's always like when we meet a person, and especially the person of Christ. This truth is sort of all-encompassing. And to begin to even describe it, the description, it may be partially true, But even to describe how one comes to this truth and lives in this truth, in some way, will always be partial and inadequate. Well, and you know, Paul, that it really does, we've just brought up full circle again, because once we identify God as truth, and we've said, yes, that truth is revealed to us by Jesus, but the truth that is being revealed to us because the person of Christ is the person of the Son of God, is also, um, you know, an entry, our entryway into participating in infinite truth. We've already said that coming to know the truth is the work of eternity. And it's an embodied work that, you know, we do in the flesh, we do in and through relationships. It claims everything in some way. And it is, it's a totalizing claim on our lives and our relationships in the world 
it's a uh, offering those things back to God in some way as uh, as we grow in this truth. This is this is a great conversation, and our listeners will have to forgive us if it's a little choppy or if the audio audio quality is uh, lacking. I mean, we're battling the coronavirus and about three hundred million people that are trying to stream Tiger King right now, you know, and whatever else. Speaking of the way of untruth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. That's right. These are this is an excellent conversation, and, and these are some big claims that we're making, right? And I mean, just the the fundamental claims of Christianity, are, of course, couldn't be any bigger than what they are. And so, John, we started talking about truth as an infinite, uncreated category, but of course, as Christians, we believe in the incarnation, and so an infinite truth is revealed by a person, a human being, even if that's Jesus, you know, who's God and man. That's pretty paradoxical, right? So, uh, can you can you help us to understand that a bit? Yeah, you know, this is probably just because I've been reading Maximus the Confessor, and he he thinks everything. I literally think he might think everything can be explained by the Chalcedonian definition, but that's simply to say that everything can be explained by who Jesus is. I think he's right about this. So, when we think about the paradox of this, we're not really considering another paradox than the fact that Jesus is the God man. So here in this person that we meet as a human being is the fullness of God, uh, infinite God and finite humanity in one in one personhood. That's quite an amazing claim already. Uh, and of course, this is what all of Christianity hinges upon. I think the way that we can think about what's going on here is that when we're talking about truth, we're, we're saying something, and when we're, when we're considering Jesus, we're saying something about the beginning and the end of existence. We're saying that, uh, actually what we're saying is the end of human existence is the beginning or is the source, such that who Jesus is, is a fully deified human being. And truthfully, you know, throughout his life, but we understand him coming to be this. Uh, there's a way in which that you're already considering the divine nature in a human person uh, fully manifest. But we see this at a few times in Jesus's ministry, right? We see it on the trans, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. We see it in the resurrection. And the amazing thing or the striking claim made in the gospel is the transfigured Lord and the resurrected Lord or the risen Lord is no different than the Jesus who is taking care of the poor and the sick and the widows and the orphans and going about his earthly ministry. Which is simply to say that we have a demonstration of this paradox. So we don't have to figure it out. And perhaps, I mean, we're not going to be able to figure it out, right? But we have it demonstrated for us. Where are we at in all of this, though? Well, we're not really at the beginning, um, and we're certainly not at the end yet. And the end even here is sort of this category that is infinite, so it's not a, it's not a specific point uh, in any continuum that we reach. So we're in the middle, and how do we handle being in the middle? Well, in, in the in-between, you know, we might travel toward or away from the truth who is God, yet God remains... And, and regardless of where we're at, God will remain for us our source. He sustains us in every moment. And also, God is the goal or the end of all things. So we relate to God as the eternal, even in time and space. And as we think about God as eternal, we're really just upholding that distinction we made at the very beginning, which is to say God isn't anything. Uh, you know, God is beyond all of that. God is transcendent. But we also know from last week, our last discussion, that God is love. And so God is the one who is unselfish in relationship to the other. So God, who is not creation, 
has created something distinct from himself purely because God's love is such that he would love something outside of himself rather than just love himself. This is what pure love is, apparently, as it's defined for us by God, both in the imminent and the economic trinity. And then we've also already said it, whether we've used these words or not, but God is the good because God is the one who is consistent. This means uh, we're really just talking about God, uh, I mean, divine simplicity. So God is continuously faithful. There is continuity in God, whereas God is always love. God is always faithful. God is always truth. What that means for us is that we are in a dependent relationship upon God. In one way, our existence itself, our being is dependent upon God, our goodness's existence is dependent upon God, and we're specifically dependent upon God in a way that we could describe as God's love. We're dependent upon God's love to continuously sustain us as something that's other than God and to have a good end in mind for us. So when we're talking about this existence that we have that is completely dependent upon God, we have to characterize this uh, existence as one in which is continuously partaking of its source and its end. This existence that we have then is true existence. So even as paradoxical it is to consider that we would already be partaking or participating in infinite truth here and now, we know that to be true, and we know it to be true simply because we are. And that's a huge claim, especially when you consider other things such as sin or our own deception or how selfish we can be. And so Paul's already mentioned it a couple of times, and uh, I said it at the beginning, that there is this way of untruth. What that would be isn't really separation from God, but it's rather just perverting this being that we have. So we can love selfishly. We all know this is the case. We've probably experienced it, right? That isn't to, in in some way, cut us fully off from who God is or from our source and our end, but it does pervert us on the way, and we, we have to work through that. Well, we don't work through it on our own. This is Jesus Christ given for the world. Uh, we have this an example, but not a mere example. We have a new reality given to us in Christ, and this is the Holy Spirit's work within us. So it is a bit of a paradox. I mean, we are holding things in tension, but much like our discussion last time when we were talking about love, what we begin to realize the more we think about this paradox or tension is that no one of us is to have this work completed in ourselves. We are not the savior of the world. We are witnesses of the salvation that has been offered for us, uh, which is simply to say this is being worked out within us. And I think good schools of theology would tend to say that's the work of eternity so that you won't even you won't finish this work. Uh, It's certainly not accomplished in this life. And even if you don't make a very good start in this life, well, you know, thanks be to God, we have eternity, that God's love is always what a way of describing our sustained being. We never uh, escape or we never are cut off from that love. And I think that is the best way then to hold that tension or that paradox is in the love of God. Wonderful conversation, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton. 
or by donating at forgingplowshares.org/donate.